Hi, this is Greg Kilstrom. Welcome to season three of the Agile World, where we discuss customer and employee experience, organizational and workforce transformation, and how business can adapt and continually improve in an Agile age. The Agile World podcast is brought to you by Tech Systems, an industry leader in full stack technology services, talent services, and real world application. For more information, go to techsystems.com. To read more about the topics discussed in this show, you can go to my website at theagile.world and read my latest articles or get a copy of my latest book, The Agile Workforce, now available on Amazon and other retailers. My name is Greg Kilstrom, and I'm the host of the Agile World podcast. Welcome to a special episode of the show brought to you in partnership with Arlington Economic Development, where we discuss issues related to the workforce, the role of place in the future of work, and the role of the creative sector in a larger business context. We call this return on creativity. Today, we're going to talk about the importance of authentic relationships with ourselves and with others, and discovering and transforming ourselves as we learn and grow both personally and professionally. To help me discuss this topic, I'd like to welcome Michael Doomlau, author of The Wisdom of Gunkles, Advice on Living Life from a Queer Perspective, and Senior Brand and Diversity Advisor at Booz Allen Hamilton. Michael, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Really honored to be here. Yeah, looking forward to it. So um, you're a recent author, um, very exciting, and, and your, your book, The Wisdom of Gunkles, talks about relationships from a number of different perspectives. Can you uh, talk a little bit about the book and, and why, why you chose to write it? Absolutely. So, um, you know, straight off the bat, I think what's important to, um, you know, say about this book and, and why it was important for me to write about it, um, I am a gay immigrant of color from the Philippines. Um, who is a gunkle, and that means gay uncle. Uh, I'm also a guardian, I'm a godfather, and I'm a mentor to a lot of young people who, especially in this last very difficult year, um, have come to me uh, with questions about how to navigate these incredibly turbulent times. Um, You're talking about a global pandemic, economic downturns, and I think most importantly, the global awakening to some very real systemic racial and social inequalities that many of us um, have had to and will continue to navigate. And I realized that as I was offering my advice and insights to um, these protégés of mine, I realized that there was a really important um, set of insights and wisdoms that are born from the unique lived experience of LGBTQ people, Um, especially as it pertains to how we relate to our families um, as these disruptive black sheep, as I call it, that call into question all of these traditions and expectations of what family love and success in life is supposed to look like. And I will definitely say that I think one thing that we can all universally say about this last year um, is that there's been a lot of disruption, right? And I think there's a lot of questions and, and, and concerns about you know, how to navigate that kind of disruption. And I really do feel that there is something to the process of coming out and, and, and identifying yourself and, and di- discovering your truth that really helps people understand how to navigate that. Um, in fact, I would say also looking around at the stories that are being told today, I definitely saw a gap um, in this specific exploration um, of identity. Um, I know there's definitely a rise in you know, the told narratives um, and stories about LGBTQ people, which is fantastic. Um, But I did see that there is a gap in how we explore specifically queer people and family, um, especially in the evolution of family beyond the biological ones that we are born into. And I would say increasingly towards chosen families that we design for ourselves. So for me, it's really about that exploration, about, um, you know, really honoring, elevating and celebrating LGBTQ identities, 
um, the, the process and the narratives that are born from that experience and what wisdoms can come out of that that can be uh, you know, offered to the rest of the world, um, as well as really that intersection of family in and of itself, which I feel has been definitely, I think, in the forefront um, of how um, you know, we as a society, as a humanity, have navigated these incredibly turbulent times. Well, let's let's dive a little bit into that then. So, you know, what would you what are some of the insights that you'd like people to understand about this, you know, this self-discovery, this transformation in relation to identity? I think number one, that there's definitely a very human universality to the process in which we uncover, cover and then recover the truths about who we are. That's certainly very true, I think, of anyone, but very, very specifically uh, is a very powerful journey that many LGBTQ people go through. Um, and that journey, while being universal to the human experience, um, is also very unique to each person. Uh, and especially in the context of the LGBTQ lived experience, um, that idea of you know, uncovering the truth about your, uh, your identity um, as queer um, or your, even your gender expression and your gender identity um, is a very disruptive part of your life, especially because we still, as a society, um, you know, navigate a world um, where our identities as LGBTQ people, as gender expansive people, um, is not consistently celebrated. In fact, in many ways, we are met with violence um, in many parts of the world. Um, while many of us, you know, do, con- do enjoy, you know, certain rights and privileges uh, that were born from, you know, many, 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 many years of struggle. Um, you know, there are many um, for whom this is not necessarily reality. In fact, I would even argue that many of those rights and privileges are embattled and are attacked on a very daily basis, um, particularly looking at all the many anti-transgender bills that are coming out right now. Um, and then certainly outside of America, you know, in the rest of the world, there are huge swaths of humanity for whom, um, you know, LGBTQ identity and gender expansive identity is still considered abhorrent um, and is very, very frequently met with violence. So, um, you know, just uncovering that truth and realizing that you are now opening yourselves up to rejection from your family, to rejection from society, to suddenly violence from society, I think is a huge step. And then learning how to cover that, you know, either through code switching or staying in the closet. And then the journey of then recovering that through coming out of the closet selectively um, through, you know, discovering the, the, the means to um, you know, create families outside of the ones that you're born into, to choosing the communities that you create safety, um, uh, you know, that you use to create safety around yourself um, and using that to recover the truth and own the truth for yourself and empower yourself with that truth. I think that journey of itself, I think, yields so much amazing insight and wisdom for many people around how to live authentically, about how to, um, you know, recognize privilege, about how to understand the concept of code switching, for example, and or, or even just how to you know, create, you know, spaces where everyone can truly live their truth, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I was very intentional in choosing the very raw, real, I call it raw, real, unrelenting stories of life and humanity, right? I very, was very intentional in creating a multinational pantheon of archetypes from all across the world that really speak to these very, very interesting issues of, and very real issues of code switching, of defying tradition, of discovering yourself through turmoil, and, and discovering really the joy um, that comes from being able to discover that truth and share that truth with the world. 
talk a little bit about the the family aspect because I know you know that's that's a big part of the book as well. So you know you talk about your um you know your your family, your chosen family, things like that. How does that how does that play into identity and and what are the some of the insights that you that you found from, yeah. from writing the book? Absolutely. So actually, I would say one of the core areas of of identity around family is this idea of the black sheep. Um, I think that's a very common sort of understanding that, you know, in every family, there's this concept of the black sheep. It's that person in the in the family that's usually seen as a cautionary tale. It's it's that person in the family that the family says, you know, don't be like this person. And um, and what I've discovered is that a lot of LGBTQ people, queer people, we are that ultimate black sheep. I mean, just coming out, we automatically embody that role. And I think traditionally we see that role as bad. We see that role as shunned. We see that role as something that you don't ever want to be. But what I've also discovered is that by being a black sheep, by being that person who poses a challenge to these usually unchallenged ideas and traditional ideas of what it means to be family, what it means to be successful, what it means to love, right? By being the person that just by being who you are, you are presenting that black sheep disruption to those ideas and those traditions that you automatically help that family and hopefully by extension that community evolve into an organization uh, sorry into a, a group into a family into a community that is more inclusive that is more equitable hopefully right um, yeah. and I feel like that idea that for me it's a very central notion um, that I feel like a lot of people outside of being, um, you know, LGBTQ can certainly relate to. I mean, who of us have never felt, you know, be that, you know, that we've ever, you know, fe- felt that in a sense of being an outsider in a family. Right, I think all right. of us have felt that we've become outsiders of family. I think all of us have felt, you know, that maybe we haven't always been, you know, the the best examples or we haven't always lived up to people's expectations. I mean, one thing that all queer people have had to grapple with is disappointing our parents, and not living up to their expectations of what they wanted out of us. You know, usually that meant a family. Usually that meant grandchildren. Usually that meant, you know, you know, continuing basically the traditions of what a family is supposed to look like in their minds. And LGBTQ people absolutely understand that feeling. It's core in many ways to our stories. Um, but I feel like a lot of other people outside of that experience also understand what it means to suddenly be that person who stands in many ways in defiance of what can sometimes be decades and generations of expectation. So let's let's switch gears a little bit here and um, talk about the the workplace and you know so how obviously identity comes comes into play um, a lot in the in people's professional lives. How are some of the ideas from your book translated to the the work environment to professional life? Absolutely. So I think. Something that a lot of people have discovered, uh, especially in this last year, um, with um, you know the the ongoing you know uh, you know murders of unarmed yeah. black people at the hands of law enforcement, um, which in of itself has awakened the world to you know systemic injustice and racial inequalities and social inequalities and the need to address that. I think if nothing else, it has forced the world and certainly forced the workplace, certainly my workplace. Uh, to grapple with the concept that if you are going to ask people to bring their full authentic selves into the workplace, then you have to allow them to also bring those traumas, to bring um, all of that pain and all of that, um, that, that, all those things that make you a person, frankly, right? That you cannot compartmentalize anymore, um, nor shy, shy away from having these difficult conversations at work. Um, And I think what this speaks to is 
these issues of authenticity um, and these issues, frankly, of challenging even that tradition of separating work from life, of not talking about these difficult conversations, not talking about race and religion and what have you at work. At the end of the day, especially since many of us who are privileged to do so are working from home, we are literally inviting our workplaces into our personal to the point that we have no longer a boundary, right? There's no longer a boundary between personal and, and, and professional. It's, it's all happening in the same space, in the same place. And I feel like that's going to continue. And so I think this issue of authenticity and truth and disruption and, and thinking critically about, you know, what does it mean to be authentic um, is something that I think definitely, um, you know, bridges the book and, 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 the, uh, and, offer, and, and what the book offers basically to um, anyone reading it is that, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, these are stories that I've collected from across the world that talk about how people have navigated their truths and offered their truths to the world and how they could translate this into a variety of workplaces, um, a, a variety of contexts, which includes the workplace. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting on a, I mean, on a much more trivial um, basis than, than some of the things that you mentioned. I mean, we've seen in Zoom meetings, we've seen dogs and cats running in front of cameras and mm-hmm. children and partners in the background or whatever. You know, it, I, I feel like there's an opportunity here um, to for everyone to have a little bit more empathy to you know to what you were just saying it's like we've we've invited other people into our homes whether it was you know by design or or by necessity we've kind of done that i mean do you do you think that this this kind of empathy is going to last i hope it does (laughs) Um, i think i would definitely say is that there's a greater level of accountability or want for accountability um you know and i absolutely um you know, I'm, I'm honored to be a, a diversity champion in my space. Um, and it's something that I very, uh, you know, deeply, um, you know, espouse, you know, in any of the workplaces and corporate spaces that I navigate is being somebody who champions diversity, who champions equity and, and wants to open up those spaces for um, authentic conversations and eventually authentic storytelling, which is frankly something that I think all marketers and communicators um, are you know our professionals in is that kind of storytelling that really offers truth, frankly, behind things like brands and 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 marketing, what have you. Um, at the end of the day, I think we can no longer turn a blind eye to issues of inequities, of race, of of um you know of gender inequities and what have you. Like I think, if nothing else, these this last year has shown us that we cannot go back to what was considered normal before the pandemic before the awakening you know to these inequities um and i would urge us to never go back to that frankly because normal back then did not work for everyone it didn't work for me as a gay immigrant of color i can tell you that it didn't work for a lot of people in my book and it doesn't work for a lot of people in my communities that i represent um, because that normal only ever saw a certain traditional notion of you know, uh, white, I'll just call it out, you know, a white cisgendered, uh, you know, male basically as the standard, right? Yeah. Um, as the standard for everything from culture to even the kinds of communications you would put out there. I don't think we can ever go back to a place where we would consider that to be the default anymore. And I would encourage us to use the examples of what we've learned in this last year um, and what we hopefully will continue to learn as ways that we can continue to challenge that so that we do honestly create a world where everyone does feel included and we have greater equity. 
So let's uh, let's change topics a little bit. Um, although I think there's you know there's some some threads of connection here. Um, uh, let's talk a little bit about the the branding initiative that you're involved yeah. in at, at Booz Allen Hamilton. And just um, you know, as as we discussed briefly before the show, it's it's certainly been well documented. So for those of you listening, there's there's you know there's a lot that's been written about it. But I wonder if you could just talk a little bit um, about you know why why it was undertaken and and why it was um, you know why it was a valuable experience. Sure, absolutely. So to give people some context, um, I was the um, uh, director of brand uh, for Booz Allen um, during the moment of our rebrand, which began in 2015 and um, essentially concluded um, last year. And in many ways, that was done to disrupt, frankly, tradition, actually, uh, you know, harkening back to my book, um, the firm in of itself was undergoing a change. Um, and it was a change that was in response to the changes in the marketplace. Um, you know, we pride ourselves as being the first, you know, management consulting company, um, you know, when we were created as a firm and, um, you know, back in 1914 and in the early 1900s, um, you know, we operated as a specific kind of company. Um, and because of the changes and the inherent disruptions brought by technology, right, in terms of consumer behavior and certainly our clients' behavior and what our clients wanted from us, uh, we as a firm needed to change along with it. And what that meant was, um, you know, increasing our proficiency and capabilities around specifically technology. And what that meant was that our brand in you know, prior to these changes, we're no longer communicating the brand value, the value proposition, and or nor the aspiration of what we wanted to be as a firm and what we wanted to provide to our clients moving forward. So, you know, as anyone out there who's ever experienced, you know, changes in their corporate environment um, and, and how their, uh, their organizations are now defining themselves to meet the demands and to stay competitive in industry, we ourselves had to go through that, that, that exploration. And so, you know, in 2015, we decided to embark on a rebrand um, in, in repositioning ourselves basically as a firm. And I was very honored and very humbled to have been able to lead that effort. Um, and a lot of that was really us, you know, rediscovering who we are as a firm, um, particularly in the context of now becoming more of a technology con consulting company and starting to really, um, you know, espouse and and promote um, these emerging capabilities around specifically cyber engineering, data science, and um, digital strategy and digital development to now offer that as part of our suite of services. And, uh, you know, for those for those listening, I mean, you know, a five-year rebranding process and, um, you know, certainly a lot of lessons learned, I'm sure, along the way. I mean, what, what advice would you give to, to others just based on on your experience, things maybe to do or things to, to reconsider? Absolutely. So, you know, the firm, you know, Booz Allen Hamilton is is well known. Um, it's, you know, one could consider it a legacy brand. Um, it's been around for well over 100 years. Um, you know, so some of the challenges was, first of all, to, you know, it's a, that's a lot to unpack. That's a lot to challenge. That's a lot to pivot and change from. 100 years of reputation is hard to change, right? Yeah. Um, you know, so I would say a lot of the challenges were, first of all, internal, right? It's, it, it forced us to really think critically about how to communicate for ourselves who we are first. So many of our activities were really focused on an internal change first. So one of the things that we did was completely reconstruct, redefine, reword in many ways, um, our own purpose and values 
um, you know, helping us understand as a firm who we are intrinsically, right, down to our core, to our DNA, what are the values that we espouse, what are the things that we expect people to commit to, um, you know, as, as members of this community, as employees of this company. So, you know, one of the key challenges was, of course, you know, understanding who we are internally, and then eventually being able to communicate that out to our candidates. Because one of the other things that we were starting to see challenges of is because we were branding ourselves in one way, we weren't attracting the kind of candidates that we needed to, um, you know, to honor the aspirations and to honor the kind of company that we were trying to move into, right? Um, and so by, you know, by attacking, um, you know, this brand challenge and these brand questions, we were also able to reorient our employer brand. We were able to reorient our employee experience and better communicate and, and eventually better recruit um, you know, the, the kinds of people that we needed, the kinds of professionals and expertise that we needed to execute against now these new capabilities, these new technologies, these new innovations and ideas that we were offering to the, you know, to the world. Um, and then ultimately, I think what that gives us is a, a change in our reputation, a change in our value proposition, um, and frankly, new relationships that we could build with new clients, with new organizations and new community members. Um, you know, we were able to, you know, to really help people think of us differently from the firm that they knew before, that they've known for 100 years. And, and what we've been saying for a long time is that, you know, you knew us for 100 years. This is how you can now think of us in 100 years hence. Yeah, yeah, great. And I definitely, definitely encourage um, those listening to, to check out more, more about it. There's lots of some, some really great work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, one, one last question before we wrap up, I'm going to um, get back to your, your book and talk a little bit about process here. So can you talk a little bit about um, how you wrote the book, the, the process of doing that? And, and, you know, would you, would you do anything differently? Would you, you know, would you approach a new book the same way? So the funny thing about this book is that this is a very, very different book than what I had originally set out to do, <laughs> to be honest yeah. with you. So, um, you know, one of, the, one of the reasons why I wrote this book, too, is because my, um, my husband, uh, who himself is a uh, queer immigrant of color um, from Peru, um, he uh, was had the joy of welcoming his niece into the world. His sister had a baby uh, several years ago. Um, and this prompted us to think about, oh my God, what kinds of ex- uh, you know, advice and what kind of journeys can we help this young child go through? And originally my idea, honestly, for this book was to create the kind of you know, sassy, chic, fashionable little coffee table book that you would typically see at like an Urban Outfitters. Um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, cute little like line drawings of like, you know, chic gay men, you know, with martini glasses saying, you got this girl, you know, <laughs> talking about, you know, makeup tutorials and, and, and fashion and career and what have you like. And it was going to be a very, very different book. And then when I started to curate the people that I would talk to and talking to them about the advice they would give, we started delving deeply into why they were credible to give that advice to begin with. And we started talking about generational traumas. We started talking about refugee experiences. We started talking about what it meant to pioneer an entire community, right? And I realized that I needed to delve deeper. So a key thing that I discovered about this book was that, um, and I've been saying this uh, to myself uh, a while now, is that writing a book is like solving a puzzle with puzzle pieces made of water. (laughs) <laughs> where nice. you have this idea, but the the elements that you are trying to fit into this idea keep shifting and changing. And at the end, what I have is this beautiful picture, right, that I can't wait to share with the world. But the, the ingredients and the elements and the different pieces, 
absolutely shifted and changed. And I'm so grateful for it because I think what I ultimately have now is something that is much more meaningful, much more, um, I think, valuable and has great insights, um, elevates amazing stories that are not always told, these incredibly achingly human, beautiful stories. Um, and I think the one piece of advice is to always tell people to, you know, be willing for that change, be willing to adapt um, because your book will change. One idea you may have had in the beginning is going to completely transform as you think about how best to represent this content, represent your ideas and represent these stories. And don't be surprised if at the end you end up with something completely different because at the end of the day, that is what makes it beautiful. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the whole creative process. I mean, having written a couple books, I, I started writing a book about the workforce pre-COVID and all of a sudden, you know, everything in the world changes a couple months later. And then, you know, it's, it's so anything from that to, I, I, I love that. I love that. I, that, um, you know, that transformation that the, that the book took and, and, and it's, it's great that you allowed it to happen to your point mm-hmm. of just, you know, kind of following that, um, you know, following that, that creative process. I mean, I wrote, I don't know about you, but I really wrote my introduction and conclusion about four or five different times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it have and the, and again to to not hold yourself to um, you know to tr- have to stick to something when you know when things are kind of pointing in in a in a new and, and more exciting direction for you know for the to be part of that process. That's that's great. Yep. Wonderful. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining the show. Um, for for those listening, what's the best way for them to keep up with what you're doing? Absolutely. So um, just go to www.thewisdomofgunkles.com. You can also follow me on the variety of socials out there on hashtag the wisdom of gunkles. I am also trying my best to own the simple hashtag gunkles, so just hashtag gunkles, G-U-N-C-L-E-S. Um, and hopefully you'll start seeing in the next couple of months leading up to the book launch um, later this fall. Um, a lot of content around those two hashtags and certainly on the website. Wonderful. Well, again, I'd like to thank Michael Dumlau, author of The Wisdom of Gunkles, Advice on Living Life from a Queer Perspective, and Senior Brand and Diversity Advisor at Booz Allen Hamilton for joining the show. To learn more about Return on Creativity, brought to you by the Agile World and Arlington Economic Development, please go to returnoncreativity.com. Thanks for listening to The Agile World with Greg Kilstrom. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the Agile World Podcast, brought to you by Tech Systems. I'm your host, Greg Kilstrom. If you enjoyed the show, please take a minute to subscribe on your podcast channel of choice and leave us a rating so that others can find the show more easily. You can learn more and get a copy of my latest book, The Agile Workforce, from my website at theagile.world.